Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 52. Last week, I began the history of the Hittites, covering how they were presented in the Old Testament and the theories concerning their origins. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering both the archaeology of the region and their prehistory, so let's get started. The Hittites were a historic Anatolian people who established an empire in what is today north-central Turkey sometime around 1600 BC, plus or minus a millennium. Their empire peaked during the mid-14th century BC under a leader known as Sopaluluma I. At that time, its territories included most of Anatolia, aka the Turkish Peninsula, on the Asian side of the Bosphorus. But they weren't limited to that region. They also stretched to northwest Upper Mesopotamia and to the northern Levant. It was at this time that they came into contact and subsequent conflict with Egypt. Also, they fought the Assyrians and the Mitanni for control of territory in the region. Think back to last week, and specifically the passages in 2 Kings chapter 7 and 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Despite their prowess, the Assyrians were eventually victorious over the Hittites and took control of their territory, at least the part to the south and east. The remainder of the empire was defeated and controlled by the Pharaohians. Finally, in the early 12th century BC, they disintegrated into several independent city-states, but some of these survived for close to 400 years until eventually being absorbed by the Neo-Assyrian Empire. The Hittite kingdom at its maximum extent encompassed about 75% of what is today the Turkish peninsula. It was aligned in their city of Hattusa, which today is relatively close to Ankara, Turkey. Hattusa is located on the Hals River, which flows from south to north, originated in the highlands of Anatolia. Actually, the course of the river is one of the more interesting in the world, first flowing west, then southwest, before turning northeast, then west, and finally north. It essentially flows 270 degrees of a circle. And I know that's hard to envision, so I'll post a map. The river itself proved to be a defining geographic feature of the empire. To the west and south of the Hittites was an area they referred to as Luia. It was from this region that the Luians would rise, to their north in the mountains of the Turkish Peninsula, were the Cascanes. To their southwest were the Mitanni. At its peak, the Hittite territory extended as far south as the Levant, aka Canaan, which I realize is a bit vague. In modern terms, it was essentially as far south as what is today the southern border of Lebanon. It was at this extent that the Hittites interacted with the people of the Old Testament. Both the Old Testament and the Armand letters agree that the Hittites were known to their contemporaries as the Kingdom of Ketah. We identify Ketah today as the Kingdom of Hattai, with the word Hattite simply referring to a person who lived in this kingdom. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, they called themselves something different in their internal records, specifically the Nesili. It appears that other societies that surrounded them also used this term. As for their history, it is generally divided into two major periods. First, there is the Old Kingdom, which was from about 1700 to 1500 BC. And quite naturally, 
the Old Kingdom was followed by the New Kingdom, which lasted from 1400 to 1200 BC. Sometimes you will see the New Kingdom refer to as the Hittite Empire. Now you may have noticed I left out about 100 years between 1500 and 1400 BC. Sometimes this is called the Middle Kingdom. Us historians are so very creative. This time period is essentially dark, meaning there have been no records uncovered that document what happened in this century. At least not yet. It is believed that the Hittite Empire peaked when ruled by King Simpaluluma I. The peak continued during the rule of his son, Mursili II. Both of these kings ruled in the mid-14th century BC. After they came and went, the Hatti Empire declined and was subjected to repeated attacks by the Sea Peoples and the Casca tribe. Then, they were finally defeated by the Assyrians. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Before I get into that, let me discuss how we know what we know about them. Up until recently, little was known about the Hittites. Well, outside of the Bible and fragmentary documentation from Egypt. This was true until the late 19th century AD, when excavations began at Bogazkel, Turkey. This site, as it would turn out, was the site of Hattusa, the capital of the Hittite Empire. What was discovered there has been described, this time by historian Christopher Scarra of the University of Durham in England. Anyway, he describes Hattusa, quoting, as a vast fortress city sprawling over rocky terrain, with craggy citadels and elaborate temples. It became the center of a powerful empire that covered not only most of Anatolia, but also at times extended far to the south, into Syria and the Levant. End quote. Before the discoveries, the only source of information about the Hittites had been the Old Testament, like I covered last week. Francis William Newman, a 19th century English professor, expressed the critical view pervasive in his time, that if the Hittites existed at all, quoting, no Hittite king could have compared in power to the king of Judah, end quote. It is believed that the city of Hattusa was founded by the Hattai in 2500 BC, and that Hattusa would eventually, through assimilation, become the Hittites. Now the history of the city is exceedingly interesting. Overall, its existence was largely unknown until writings concerning it were discovered by two independent researchers, one German and the other Irish, in the 19th and 20th centuries AD. Then, by 1912, once again AD, the German Hugo Winkler had recovered over 10,000 clay cuneiform tablets from what would later become known as the Hittite Royal Archives. I touched on these last week when covering the language of the Empire. On these tablets, the Hittites used a form of Mesopotamia cuneiform script. They were written in either the Semitic Akkadian language of Assyria and Babylonia, which is thought to have been the diplomatic language of the time, or they were written in other various dialects of Hittite. Where did this alphabet come from? Skipping ahead in the timeline a bit, just know that there were Assyrian colonies in the Anatolian region during the Old Assyrian Empire which was from about 2000 to 1750 BC. It was from these Semitic Assyrians located in Upper Mesopotamia that the Hittites adopted the cuneiform script, but only the script, not the words themselves. These tablets recorded their history as well as business transactions 
and surprisingly were relatively quickly deciphered. Relatively. The translation process was aided by the fact that many Babylonian words were included in the text. I normally wouldn't delve into the actual translation, but I'll make an exception today. As I finish the quote, it should become clear why. The modern Turkish historian Erdal Yavuz described the decipherment and translation process in great detail. He said, quoting, Bedrick Hornsey, a Czech professor at the University of Vienna in 1916, deciphered the Hittite language. The starting point was a phrase on the inscription in cuneiform, Nu Ninda An Izatini, Vatar Ma. Since many Babylonian words were included in the Hittite text, the clue was provided by the Babylonian word Ninda, which means food or bread. Hornsey asked himself a simple question. What does one do with food or bread? The answer, of course, was one eats it. So the word intini must be related to eating. And then the an suffix on ninda must be a marker for a direct object. With these two propositions in hand, Hornsey looked at both the vocabulary and the grammar of Indo-European languages. He noted that the verb to eat is similar to the Hittite iza, not only in English, but also in Greek, eden, Latin, eater, German, essen, and especially in medieval German, essen. If this was true, the second line of the inscription was not much of a problem, since it began with the word vatar, which could easily be translated as English water or German wasser. Hornsey proposed the reading of the whole sentence as, Now bread you eat, water you drink. And this turned out to be right for the whole Hittite language. It was of Indo-European origin. End quote. And that is why I included the lengthy quote. This is how the origin of the language was determined. It was during the 1920s, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the founding of the country of Turkey, that interest in the Hittites increased. It was then that numerous archaeologists finally deciphered the Hittite hieroglyphs. So much interest was garnered that the academic field was officially named Hittology and led to the founding of the Museum of Anatolian Civilizations in Akara. Even today, this museum houses the most comprehensive exhibition of Hittite artifacts in the world. The history of the Hittite civilization, at least as we know it today, primarily stems from these uncovered cuneiform texts. Other gaps were filled in in the form of diplomatic and commercial correspondence found in other archives in Assyria, Babylonia, Egypt, and essentially throughout the Middle East. Like I've mentioned a few times, the translation of these texts also served to aid in the establishment of their language as originating from Indo-European sources. I know I've talked about the term several times, and the subject of what is an Indo-European language is probably worth a little sidebar. Indo-European languages are essentially a widespread language family, consisting of several hundred related languages and even more dialects. Overall, there are an estimated 445 living, meaning currently in use, Indo-European languages. Of this number, over 300 belong to the Indo-Iranian branch alone. There are several interesting statistics that yield insight into how pervasive these languages are. First, the most widely spoken Indo-European languages by native speakers are Spanish, English, Hindustani, meaning Hindi or Urdu 
Portuguese, Bengali, Russian, and Punjabi, each with over 100 million speakers. And to me at least, there is one interesting tidbit embedded in there. Spanish, English, and Portuguese are easily understood as being related, as they are all found in Western Europe. Well, that's not the interesting bit. The interesting bit is that these Western languages are related to Hindi and Urdu, the native languages of India and Pakistan. Also, German, French, and Persian are pervasive Indo-European languages. Second, it's estimated that 46%, which is nearly half, of the globe's population speaks an Indo-European language as a first language, and this far outpaces any other language family. The Indo-European language family includes most of the living languages of Europe, except for Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian, and lesser languages spoken in parts of Russia. Also, Basque and Georgian are not part of the family. And true to the Indo-word and Indo-European, the language family is also found in Western, Central, and South Asia. And the reason it's in this episode is that it was the principal language family in ancient Anatolia. Once again, boggling my mind at least, it's related to languages found in the ancient Tarim Basin, which is located in present-day northwest China. Also, the family was found in most of Central Asia, at least until the medieval Turkic migrations and the Mongol invasions. The current theory is that all Indo-European languages are descendants of a single prehistoric language. This language has been reconstructed by researchers as Proto-Indo-European, and is thought to have been first spoken in the Neolithic era. But how is this theorized to have happened considering no written records remain from this language? Linguistic researchers have taken aspects of the culture and religion of the ancient Indo-European language speakers. Also, the same has been done with the modern Indo-European speakers who live in areas to where the Proto-Indo-Europeans migrated from their original homeland. Now, having said all that, of course other researchers dispute the research, as well as the linking of Indo-European to other major language families. And that's enough of that sidebar. Back to the history of the Hittites. Some of the uncovered tablets indicate that the Hittite military made successful use of chariots, which shouldn't come as much of a surprise considering the Old Testament text I covered last week. Also, it seems they were on the cutting edge Pardon the somewhat intentional pun on the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age. It is believed that they first began to use iron as early as the 18th century BC. How do we know this? Well, there is someone called the Manaburashanda who gave the Kainshite king Anatub both an iron throne and an iron scepter. We know this because a record of it was found in the Anata text inscription. Unfortunately, neither the throne nor the scepter have been found, and probably never will be since iron rusts fairly easily. Remembering back a few minutes when Francis Newman, the 19th century English professor, commented that no Hittite king could have compared in power to the king of Judah. Well, this theory held true until the latter 19th century, when the archaeological evidence changed opinions. The digs uncovered cuneiform tablets, and outside texts led to a new understanding that the scale of the Hittite Empire was much larger than that of Judah, and more on par with the divided kingdom of Egypt, amassing much more power and prestige than that of Judah. Of note, in the texts of the Old Testament, if you subscribe to the view that there were two Hittites, 
the larger country to the north, and the smaller mountain-dwelling people, then Judah and the Hittite kingdom were never enemies in the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Kings, the Hittites were supplied by the Egyptians via King Solomon with chariots and horses. And, not knowing which of the two Hittite groups are really referenced, they were a friend of Abraham in Genesis. Finally, Uriah, a Hittite, was a captain in King David's army and counted among one of his mighty men in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. So, the modern understanding of the Hittites goes back to 1834 A.D., when French scholar Félix-Marie-Charles Texier discovered the first Hittite ruins. Unfortunately, he did not know they were Hittite, thinking they were from another culture and moment in history. The first archaeological evidence for the Hittites was discovered at an Assyrian site, specifically the modern site of Kaltepe in central Turkey, which was the location of an ancient city of Kurum Kanesh. These records contained notations of trade between Assyrian merchants in a place noted as the land of the Hattai. What was interesting is that some of the names in the cuneiform tablets were neither Assyrian nor Hattic, but are believed to be Indo-European. There is also a monument found at Bogazkoy in north-central Turkey that refers to the people of the Hattusas. It was discovered by William Wright in 1884. Its engravings include hieroglyphic scripts, apparently from Aleppo and Hamath, which of course are located in northern Syria. Then, in 1887, excavations at Tel el Amana in Egypt uncovered what is thought to have been diplomatic correspondence of Pharaoh Amenhotep III and his son Akhenaton. The correspondence references the Hittites. There were also two letters from someone known as the King of Keta, which is thought to have been located in the same general region as other Mesopotamian references to a land of Hattai. These were written in cuneiform, but the language was unrecognized, at least at the time. The script, but for clarity, let's call it an alphabet, was Akkadian. The letters formed unknown words. Essentially, it could be read, but it made no sense, and this goes back to the quote that I referred to a few minutes ago. Then, a fellow named Archibald Sace, a British Assyriologist and linguist, proposed that the king of Aketa in these Egyptian texts was the same as either Hattai or Kattai in Anatolia. He also proposed that they were the same as the Old Testament Hittites. He was partially contradicted by Max Muller, a German-born British professor of linguist, who agreed that the Kattai were probably Keta. Muller, though, thought that the Keta were not the Hittites, but were instead the biblical Kittim. Over time, more researchers sided with Sais, and as such, the name Hittite has become associated with the civilization uncovered at Bogazkoy. It was during another round of excavations at Bogazkoy, these beginning in 1906, that the previously referenced Royal Archive of Cuneiform Texts were found. But the reason I'm mentioning them again is to remind you that, when discovered, the script was similar to that of Egyptian documents and was indecipherable. But it was similar enough to the Egyptian documents that archaeologists and linguists were able to determine that they were written in the same language and therefore referred to the same people. In essence, they were Ketian. One more thing. Given the geographic descriptions, they seemed to confirm that these people once controlled northern Syria. Now here's something amazing and a little bit difficult to comprehend. 
Excavations at Hetusa have been underway almost continuously since 1907, with largely the only interruptions during the two world wars. That's over a century of excavations. The whole time, they have been directed by the German Archaeological Institute. Other smaller excavations have been conducted in the surrounding area. And when I imagine the German Archaeological Institute, for some reason what pops in my mind is Indiana Jones. But I'm sure that's not exactly how it unfolds. Anyway, other smaller excavations have been conducted in the surrounding area. These include the rock sanctuary of Yazokaya, which contains numerous reliefs carved into stone which portray the Hittite rulers and their deities. A picture will be posted on the podcast Facebook page. I would normally stop here and save the rest for next week, but it would make for a fairly short episode, and I might as well get a head start on the history of the Hittites, or at least the prehistory. Researchers tend to believe that the predecessors to the Hittites migrated to Anatolia sometime before 2000 BC. Where did they come from? Well, there is no general consensus. There is speculation, and it really is just speculative, that they may have originally come from what is present-day Ukraine, or should I say an area recently annexed by Russia. This theory is based on the similarities in the languages, the Indo-European languages. If true, then it probably occurred sometime between the 4th and 3rd millennia BC. Another source believes that they may have been herders, who also spoke an archaic pre-Indo-European language that began migrating from Central Europe towards Anatolia sometime around 4000 BC, maybe hitting the trail due to a collapsing society in their homeland. Their descendants eventually made it to Anatolia about 1,000 years later. Wherever they came from, and whenever they arrived, they were not the first people in the region, as the Hattians and Hurrians were already there. Also unknown is if they migrated in without a fight and assimilated, or if there was some sort of conflict. Remember, this is prehistory, and as such by definition, there are no written records of any sort so speculation abounds. But it is known that they came from somewhere else, as the native Hurrians and Hattians spoke a non-Indo-European language. In the case of the Hattics, it appears their language was a northwestern Caucasian language, meaning from the Caucasus mountain region. The Hurrians, on the other hand, spoke a language different from any other language yet discovered. Babel, anyone? And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of the Hittites. You don't want to miss it. This week, I hope is the week you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. I've made this request several times and I will continue to make this request because sooner or later, more of you will take me up on it. Remember, doing so helps others to find the podcast. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.